Hello and welcome back to another episode of The European Lens with me, Frances Fitzgerald. I'm very excited to be back and over the next couple of weeks we're going to take a deep dive into EU and Irish defence policy over two very specific and special episodes. On next week's episode we'll hear from Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence. We'll have a lengthy conversation with him about Irish neutrality, defence policy, cyber security and what the future looks like for Ireland in terms of defence. Today's episode focuses on the view from Europe and how Ireland compares to other EU nations when it comes to defence and security policy. I am joined today by two experts in this field, my friend and colleague Arno Danjean, MEP, and Professor Bridget Laffin. Arno is a French member of the European Parliament and Vice Chair of the EPP Group with a distinguished career behind him, and he's also the coordinator for the Subcommittee on Security and Defence in the European Parliament. Professor Bridget Laffin is well known in Ireland as a highly regarded public commentator on EU affairs with a very distinguished career in UCD and in Europe. I began by asking my colleague Arno to explain the work of the Subcommittee on Defence of the Parliament and if they look at new and emerging threats such as cybersecurity and biosecurity. Well, the Subcommittee on Security and Defence um, is a rather limited, uh, I would say, institution within the Parliament because you know that the prerogatives uh, in the field of defence, the parliamentary prerogatives are very, very limited. So uh, I would say we do mainly two things. The first thing is we indeed try to have as much as possible hearings, studies uh, and meeting with experts in the field uh, covering uh, the, the whole defense and security issues. So from cyber to classical, uh, I would say, military threats to emerging threats, new actors, uh, hybrid warfare. We try to uh, to cover a wide range of issues. And in this regard, I would say we, we act more or less like a, I would say a think tank, a kind of a think tank. And we try to have a broad reflection on all these problems. The second aspect is more classical uh, parliamentary work with a kind of an oversight, uh, specifically on missions and operations which are undertaken by the European Union. A lot of citizens in European Union don't know, are not aware that the European Union is indeed already uh, doing a lot of things in the field of uh, defense uh, by deploying abroad uh, civilian and military uh, missions. We have, I would say, altogether uh, uh, almost uh, uh, 20 missions and operations around the globe. Uh, it goes from a rule of law mission in Kosovo, for example, to a training military missions in, in some countries in Africa. And these missions are undertaken under EU umbrella. And uh, in this regard, we as a parliament, uh, we have uh, some powers to I would say, to check and control what is being done, even though we are not the ultimate decider upon this uh, mission. So that's basically the two main works we, we do uh, within the subcommittee. I know. I recently heard you compare Ireland and Sweden's policy and neutrality. Do you think such a policy is viable for EU states in the 21st century? Well, my point, as far as I remember, was uh, that uh, EU, when it comes to defence issues, is very heterogeneous. Uh, and, and I was mentioning Ireland, Sweden, Austria as neutral country, very attached to, to, to neutrality. Uh, but it doesn't prevent, by the way, uh, these countries 
to take part to some uh, missions, be that uh, UN mission or EU missions. And I have uh, very vivid and concrete memories of uh, Irish uh, officers and military personnel serving in some African mission of the EU, for example. Uh, uh, but you have also, of course, uh, a more uh, robust and uh, uh, I would say uh, more uh, uh, involved countries like France, uh, and, and you, you have all the, the, I would say, all the characteristics uh, uh, in, in, within European Union. It can be seen as a problem uh, because when we try to define a consistent and coherent defense policies, of course, this different status uh, can be uh, problematic. At the same time, I'm, I'm very uh, attached to uh, the identity of each nation state within European Union. And this diversity uh, has, uh, is, has some reasons. And, and we, we, we come to the heart of, of the sovereignty and identity. So I, don't, uh, I, I, would, I wouldn't say that I'm, I, I want countries to change their constitutions or to change their, the way they act in the field of defense, because I think it's, it's, it's really at the heart of uh, each one's identity. But I think we, we must find the way uh, to cooperate more closely despite these differences. And, uh, uh, and I think ultimately it's a question of political will. I think the European institution should allow a kind of flexibility, reflecting precisely the differences we have within European Union, not, uh, I would say, avoiding to act when necessary because of the difference of status, but allowing some flexibility for uh, those who want and can contribute maybe more robustly to, uh, to some operations and missions. Do you think it limits cooperation? The boundaries that Ireland has, uh, does it limit what the EU can do? And will it lead to a two-tier defence policy within the EU in the future? Well, the risk is indeed that uh, uh, we could have a uh, uh, different class, I would say, within European Union, uh, uh, but actually uh, what we witnessed over the last few years is that um, the main problems are not coming from neutral countries, uh, because uh, I would say uh, with neutral countries, it's very clear we know the limitations from the very beginning. The real problem is the countries which have, uh, on principle, no limitations, but who are very reluctant to engage concretely. Uh, I would say it's more problematic in a way. Um, uh, but having said that, um, the, the, the main issue uh, is not the separation uh, according to the status, because uh, what we see is that depending on the geography mostly, and depending on, on, on the, I would say, sensitivity of, of, of some crisis, uh, you will find uh, uh, enough country willing to engage. And, um, and, and in that regard, once again, I, I saw uh, uh, Ireland playing a very positive role. I remember a mission in Chad. Uh, uh, I remember some mission in Africa where, where Ireland was participating. So the main problem and constraints we have does not come from neutral country, by the way, but it comes from uh, countries who have uh, the means uh, to, to deliver and to do more and who are reluctant to do so. And that's for me the, the, the main issue at the moment. I'd like to talk about France for a moment. There are questions being raised following the failed Australia submarine deal. The French foreign minister recently called it a stab in the back. What does the outcome mean for France? 
as you intend to host an EU defence summit when it takes over the rotating presidency of the EU Council in 2022. What sort of questions would you like to see discussed and debated there? Precisely what we were discussing. Uh, how can European Union as such, I would say, and European countries uh, be more effective uh, in the field of defence without uh, undermining, uh, I would say, both things, their, their internal differences uh, and status and the transatlantic link, which is still vital in, in the field of security and defence for Europe. Uh, we have to find a way to, to have a more robust defence policy uh, not hurting uh, internally uh, the different uh, perspective, the different perspective of of, of, the, of our countries. I think once again the key word for me is flexibility. Those who really want and are able to engage and to do more should be allowed to do so, even on the behalf of, on behalf of the others. Um, uh, uh, like pro- probably like what we did with Schengen or with the euro. Uh, because sometimes we say, well, it's not good to have two class uh, European Union countries. But uh, in reality, the most advanced um, uh, integrated policies we have are precisely based on willingness and flexibility. And Euro, not all 27 countries are in the Eurozone and not all 27 countries are in the Schengen area. Uh, and it works. So, so we could have something flexible in the field of defense, respecting each one's identity and also allowing to have sometimes a more robust approach. I think that's the French traditional view on that. And when it comes to uh, AUKUS and what happened in the Indo-Pacific, I think the frustration was, uh, was big in France, uh, mainly on the form, I would say, because the way our Australian partner behaved, uh, at least the government was, was, the prime minister was, clearly not appropriate. When you deal with allies and friends and you want to build a reliable partnership, you don't hide things until the very last minute and and to break a deal at the end. So that was badly perceived in France, but uh, I think we will overcome that. Uh, The challenges are so big in the Indo-Pacific. The the Chinese attitude is so assertive now that we have any way to come together, I would say, uh, and and I think we will... uh, we will try again to engage, uh, but but indeed it was uh, it was badly managed by mainly by the Australian executive, um, uh, and also our British friends didn't play a, a very clear role in that. So I think I think yeah the the, the bitterness in France is is quite deep. Uh, it will not be easy to overcome, but we'll have to overcome anyway. And I hope we can come to more uh, uh, reasonable approach uh, altogether. Let me turn to Professor Bridget Laffin now. Bridget, you've been listening to what Arno has to say. Do you think the Irish government is doing enough in terms of defence and security? You have called for Ireland to abandon its traditional policy on military neutrality. What exactly, Bridget, do you mean by that? So so firstly, uh, I think it's really important that you're doing a podcast on defence. I think it's an issue that we in Ireland need to talk more about and to talk in a way that's removed from the politics of referendums where there is always discussion of European armies and conscription, etc., etc. So I think it's a very important debate. In terms of it, does Ireland do enough? I think we have a major problem in Ireland, but also it comes from very benign geographical situation where we don't take security and defence seriously. There is not in Ireland what I would call a national security policy. 
And it's largely because of geography. In, historically, Ireland suffered because of its geography, because it was beside one of the world's great empires. But in the from the second half of the 20th century onwards, the, the Cold War interface was far away from Ireland and all of the global turbulence was. But there are two reasons why we need to take defence and security more seriously. Firstly, is that uh, security threats now are no longer just from geography, but of course from cyber and our own, the HSE, the whole entire health system was brought down because of a cyber attack. So we need to take the new threats seriously. And the second is our role and responsibility as a good citizen in the world. The one area where Ireland can hold its head up its head high in terms of its contribution globally is peacekeeping. We have a very honourable and long tradition of peacekeeping in the UN, but that's because the attitude is we're peacekeeping, but sometimes there are situations where you've actually got to go beyond peacekeeping to intervention to prevent conflicts from becoming more serious. So I think it's rather to have the debate in Ireland, what is our security policy? And I think that's where we should begin. And I think it's very important that there is now an independent commission on Irish defence. And I think that should start the public debate uh, on the future. In terms of my my attitude towards uh, military neutrality, I have never advocated that Ireland join NATO, for example, because I think that is politically not possible. But I think what we shouldn't do is have a situation where we have a triple lock on the deployment of Irish troops. At the moment, Irish troops can only be deployed if there is a decision by the Irish government, a vote in the Irish parliament, and a Security Council resolution, a UN resolution. And I don't think any independent state, including Ireland, should be dependent on the UN Security Council, and we know there are authoritarian governments on that council, that can veto the what should be the democratic choice of the Irish state. So in my view, we the triple I, I would have a double lock, and the double lock would be the government and the, the Iraqis, but not the triple lock. And then another area that we need to pay attention to, and that is what will happen in terms of uh, European security and defence policy writ large. And I agree with Anglo that it's much more likely to be coalitions of the willing. It's not likely to be uh, all of Europe, uh, all of the EU at any one time. But I think we've got to, in Europe, face the fact that there, the US has tilted towards the Pacific, and that Europe itself lives in a rather difficult neighbourhood, both to the south and the east. And so Europe itself will have to face what its responsibility is for its security. And when we look across the EU at the moment, uh, there are obviously those member states that are very Atlantist. They tend to be the eastern half of the continent and because of Russia. But also with the departure of the UK, the EU lost another robust power when it came to military capability. So in some ways, France is uh, almost on its own uh, in the EU at the moment. Now, I do think that there is a lot can be done because the EU member states spend a lot on defence. They just don't necessarily get the return because of all sorts of reasons of interoperability, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think there are there's a need for a discussion in Ireland 
both about Irish policy, but also then where Ireland fits in the broader European and international environment. Why do you think it's so difficult to have that public debate and conversation in Ireland? What is the fear of greater cooperation? Where does it come from? Why is it so difficult to have these public conversations? And why do we always end up talking about a European army when we're holding referendums? I think so. I think that there is a cohort of activists in Irish society for whom uh, military neutrality is a holy grail, and uh, it's almost military neutrality and UN good, and anything the EU might do bad. I think it probably is related historically to the sort of experience of colonialism and and fear of of what a Europe. Uh, um, um, a Europe with strong military capacity might be or might do. Uh, But I think it's also the fact that we really don't have to take defence seriously. I think I've always said that if Ireland had been geographically located in the North Sea, on the other side of the United Kingdom, then I think we would be members of NATO. So it's also the fact that we have the choice that we can debate about defence and security without really feeling, in a visceral sense, a security threat, which if even the other neutrals, Sweden Sweden is in a different geographical location and therefore takes defence much more seriously. Finland, again, knows that Russia is the other side of that border. So it's partly to do with our geography and the fact that we really can afford in some ways to get away with it. I also think that there probably would be opposition to uh, the investment it would require because that's another element of Irish defence policy. I don't think we equip our army properly and sometimes we don't equip them properly for overseas missions. We don't spend enough. So I think it's pretty deep, but it it is important Uh, that we have the the national conversation now. And I do think that with cyber and all of that, I think the debate has shifted somewhat. But I still remember being on the street during referendum campaigns where the the spectre of the European army was, became highly emotive uh, and, and had purchased with a certain cohort of the Irish electorate. I certainly remember that myself uh, when I was campaigning and the big fears uh, that were generated about a European army. I'm wondering what might shift the conversation. Uh, There's a new commission, but it seems that we have kind of a conscious and unconscious reaction every time we discuss defence policy. You know, many activists speaking about decreasing military spending and that people just want to warmonger almost as opposed to initiatives like Arno has been speaking about and you're now speaking about. Well, I think that the first thing that should happen is the Irish public should be more aware of what it's already doing. Ireland is a member of PESCO. Arno mentioned Chad. Ireland was was very involved in Chad. So we need to also know what we're doing. I think there is a responsibility among politicians to have the debate, but not in a politicised way. But I'm not, none of this would be easy. None of it ever was easy. But I, again, I I was very struck by the HSE cyber attack and how that was a very clear experience for the Irish public that cybersecurity really matters and that Ireland can't do cybersecurity on its own. Again, I'm always struck by the fact that 
the Irish army itself tends to work under the radar. You don't tend to get very senior officers engaging in public debate in ways that they might in other countries. And that, of course, goes to the foundation of the state and the IRA, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I do think that we, on the issue of defence and security, we don't have a an attentive public as you would in a country like France, where the military are really much more important and a much more visible part of the state apparatus. Let me turn now to Ursula von der Leyen's uh, speech during the State of the Union address. She said the EU should increase its military capabilities and confront security threats and global crisis. Do you think such a move would be resisted by member states? Uh, And Bridget, you might comment on Brexit. I mean, has that impacted our neutrality? Are we still as reliant on our closest neighbour? Or is that going to shift things as well? Firstly, on Ursula von der Leyen, I think she rightly identifies the fact that Europe has made progress in the area of defence and security. She talked about there's an institutional ecology now. But of course, that's not military capacity or defence capacity in and of itself. And I think what will drive in the end, what will drive this is what happens NATO and the future of NATO. As long as NATO and the US provide the nuclear umbrella to Europe, as long as uh, there are a significant number of member states who see NATO as their primary security guarantee, uh, guarantee, then of course, uh, the EU will always, what the EU does will be secondary to, uh, to what NATO does. But I do think that we have to, uh, in Europe more generally, uh, acknowledge and begin to understand that there are shifts and shocks in geopolitics. The EU would have loved a world and wants a world in which the world is more like Europe. But that's not the world out there anymore. We live in a period of great power competition. We see that competition now in the Indo-Pacific. We don't know what kind of power China is in the future. Uh, Russia is a very disruptive power for for Europe, again, on gas at the moment. Uh, Is Russia playing a game with Europe uh, and are we too dependent on Russian gas? So I do think she's identifying something that is now important in a European context, but in my view becomes much, much more important as time goes by because the US is no longer the unipolar power in the world. Yes, it's a large power. Yes, it's a superpower. But uh, the US is not uh, as committed to the multilateral system as it once was. And I think AUKUS was a shock to France, but it should also be seen as a shock to Europe because it's not just that the Australians behaved badly, but the Americans did not take into consideration the impact this would have on a large EU member state, France, but also on on Europe more generally. And then on Brexit, uh, I think that the security cooperation with with the Ireland-UK continues. For example, we're dependent on the RAF for an air umbrella. And that will continue because uh, I see, I don't think that we are uh, intending on spending the kind of money to have that capacity, but that will be bilateral. But I do think that what Brexit has done is it it's 
sharpened uh, the realization in Ireland and for Ireland that the EU is Ireland's geopolitical anchor now. It is the anchor that holds us in a very complicated and contested world. And therefore, we've also got, uh, uh, over the next, I would say, decade, uh, got to decide broadly on what that union needs in order to ensure that Europe is prosperous and safe uh, as we head into the, the the later decades of the 21st century. A few quick questions to both of you. Let's turn to Afghanistan. Arno, could the EU have done more and provided a more unified response to the evacuation? Well, I think politically we could have done better in terms of coordination and especially in terms of anticipation. And for example, uh, I mean, the, there is no glory in that, but uh, the France, for example, uh, from springtime already, uh, was envisaging uh, and planning uh, a withdrawal of, of civilian people because we knew that something would happen because uh, once the U.S. had said that they would withdraw and the Taliban would took over at some point, it went more quickly than expected indeed. Uh, uh, but, uh, but I think better anticipation and planification could have been possible. Having said that, militarily speaking or in terms of or capability-wise, uh, it would have been difficult for Europe alone anyway. We lack uh, what we call strategic transport. Uh, we lack some uh, uh, capabilities in that regard, and we are, we are heavily depending on the U.S. for uh, accurate intelligence plus um, air transport and strategic uh, air transport. So um, I, my, my, my answer to that, to that question is, uh, is mixed, I would say. Yes, we could have done better as European. We could have done something in terms of planification, but I don't think we could have uh, acted alone anyway. I agree entirely with what Arno has said. I would simply add that in the process of getting people out, I think that the European states worked very well together. In other words, they tried to make sure that they put as many people as possible on planes, but Europe had no possibility unilaterally of either keeping that airport open for longer or transporting more people out. Uh, and again, it's a warning to Europe that uh, there are, and it shouldn't have been because Arno's absolutely right. From the time that Trump did the deal with the Taliban, then it, what happened was inevitable. What we what we didn't know was how quickly, uh, how quickly uh, Kabul in particular would fall. But so I, I think it's a warning. I think it will be also a learning but the absence of that strategic uh, transport capacity is really serious. And for example, from an Irish perspective, we could not get Irish citizens out on an Irish-owned plane. Let me now go back to something that you actually spoke about, Bridget, an EU army and the fears about that. Let me ask both of you, do we need an EU army? Should it happen? And by the way, will it happen, Bridget? We don't need a, a European army now. Uh, but there may well come a time when Europe will have to be responsible for its own defence, in which case, yes, it's the important thing is who has, where is the chain of command? In other words, who is responsible? Because as we know, defence and security, defence is a serious business. And when people's lives are involved, it's got to be very clear who's responsible for what. So I don't see that 
unified European army emerging anytime soon. But of course, the world, as I said, is very unpredictable and that can change. And what would drive the change is what might or could happen in NATO over the next 20 years. Arne, what about your comments on a European army? I fully agree with what has been said by Bridget. Uh, uh, the key issue there is uh, the responsibility, the political responsibility and the chain of command. Because on the paper, I would say, theoretically, um, in many countries, this idea of European army sounds uh, logical, sounds uh, ideal, um, but people don't see uh, at first sight what it means really. Uh, because sending people to kill and to die uh, sorry to put it that way, but uh, that's about the military uh, uh, work, I would say, which is something unique in our societies, uh, democratic societies. It requests, uh, uh, it requires a great responsibility and a legitimacy, political legitimacy, uh, which is uh, enormous. And, uh, and by no means we can, I would say, share that uh, with the institution we have in place at the European level now, who would take the decision to send a European army uh, and where to? Uh, we have seen, for example, in Eastern Mediterranean, difference of approaches between France and Germany towards Turkey, for example. So what would we do with one European army? So the, the important thing is not to have a European army as such. I think it would cause more problem than, than solve problems, but uh, it's uh, a capacity, capa capacity to act for Europe militarily, and this capacity can be uh, uh, joining forces. So I do believe in joint uh, units uh, with different nationalities, with different capabilities, with different uh, traditions and, and way of operating. Uh, I do believe in, in joint forces. I do not believe in integrated forces. And by the way, even the most, what we call the most uh, successful military alliance in the world, NATO, uh, uh, NATO has no integrated army as such. NATO is still made up of uh, uh, 28 set of uh, national forces joining uh, case by case in coalitions. So I do believe that we have to be more efficient in working together, in cooperating together, but European army as such is, uh, as we say in France, uh, it's uh, c'est une fausse bonne idée. Uh, and, and I don't think it has any concrete future now. And we shouldn't sell to our public opinion this kind of illusion, because if we fail to reach that objective, people will once again turn to Europe and say, well, Europe is not delivering, Europe is failing. Whereas in this field, precisely, progress has to be made step by step. It seems to me there are a lot of gaps in the public conversation about defence and security in Ireland and maybe in France. What do you think about that, Arno? Do we need a better public debate? Is that true in France as well as in Ireland? Well, actually, you're right. You're absolutely right at the European level. And from what I hear from, from you and, and and Bridget, I, I understand that also in Ireland specifically, uh, there, there should be more open debate on this. In France, I would say we have a, quite a specific situation because, I, as Bridget said at some point, uh, uh, the army is quite important within the state apparatus. Uh, also within the public opinion, we are quite used to have uh, news from army. Our army is deployed in very concrete uh, operations uh, now, for example, 
in Syria and Iraq, uh, in, in Mali. And there is no single week in France where we do not speak about that. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes because we, we lose people, uh, we, we have lost uh, more than 50 soldiers uh, in Mali in, uh, in uh, eight years. Uh, and, uh, and and each time, you know, it's a, it's a great emotion in, in France, and, and and it's an opportunity to talk about this. So um, I wouldn't say that we lack public debate in France, even though uh, we talk about the French operations, but sometimes we uh, we miss uh, the European dimension uh, in that regard. So uh, yes, indeed, in many European countries. The, there should be more debate. We have also our responsibility in that. For example, we were talking at the very, very beginning of this uh, podcast uh, about the uh, uh, European Parliament, where both of you, both of us, sorry, uh, are sitting. Uh, and I was telling you that the defense is treated within a, a subcommittee, and it tells a lot. It's not a full-fledged committee. It's a subcommittee because prerogatives are very limited, but also uh, the space for debate within this parliament uh, is very limited as well. Which people will find surprising. The Irish public often think we talk endlessly about defence in the European Parliament. And Bridget, what are your thoughts on this topic? The debate on defence and security differs across Europe. I think there are countries, the eastern half of the continent, then I think public opinion is well aware of what the threats are. I think the interesting country that we haven't spoken about, and I think it's really important, is Germany. Because I think Germany has has an internal struggle about, uh, for good historical reasons, uh, about the deployment of military capacity or even the building of military capacity. And uh, I think that Germany is the quintessential uh, commercial trading state. But in the world that's coming, I think, again, Germany is a country that needs uh, to have a very robust debate, I would say, about, for example, its dependence on Russia, its attitude towards Russia. I think China comes into the frame. So again, I think it isn't just the small countries struggle to have this debate, but I think Germany, I would identify as a country that needs to have a more robust debate about security and defense and about German policy towards uh, the Indo-Pacific and, and also Russia. Quick word on cybersecurity before we finish. You mentioned already, Bridget, the threats we've seen in Ireland. We're seeing it across the world. Is this going to bring member states together, I wonder, in a new way, uh, defending our own interests, Arno? Uh, well, uh, I hope so. But uh, we have to be well aware that in that field, uh, highly uh, technical field, um, uh, the, the work starts at home. Uh, and and uh, it very much depends on member states first uh, to adapt their own capabilities in terms of uh, technologies, uh, in terms of uh, uh, public policies, but also in terms of uh, institutions. And in that regard, Europe is still very heterogeneous. And um, before coming to a common response, uh, we can, of course, do, do better together. But, um, but the, the homework is, is quite important in each of our countries. Uh, and then we can envisage to have a more coherent system at the European level. But uh, you cannot have this common system if you have uh, 
shortfalls or, or shortages in, in, in some countries. And, and it's actually the case uh, in terms of technologies, but mostly in terms of also institutions dealing with that, with that threat. I agree. I think there's a European uh, component to cybersecurity, but I don't think it will be a driver of European defence cooperation. I think Europe will be, yes, a forum for discussion, for debate, and probably the development of perhaps shared and joint instruments over time. But this is not where we are. This is not where we are now. And of course, there is the wider European issue of uh, where we stand in terms of evolving and developing technologies. So cyber, cyber will be part of the defence and security discussion, but also part of the uh, technology discussion. Thank you so much to both Arnaud Danjan, MEP, and Professor Bridget Laffin for what I think has been a really fascinating discussion on European and indeed Irish defence and security policy. It's clear we need to continue and develop this important and very relevant conversation if we are to face the challenges of the 21st century. And thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back again next week when we hear from Simon Coveney, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, for his perspective on this important topic and on Ireland's place in the world when it comes to our defence policy. Until then, thank you for listening and take care. Bye.